Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. The revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants which, which, what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Well, welcome. Good morning. Good morning. My name is John. I'm the pastor of the church. I'm, uh, I'm glad that you're here. We did have the 8 o'clock service for the first time, and some of you lied to me. You said you'd be there. And we're going to talk about it after service, okay? No, it was great. Uh, I do want to let you know for, for following weeks, we have got the 8 o'clock service, 9.30 and 11 o'clock uh, Tell everyone you know about 8 o'clock, um, but I'm so pleased uh, to see all of you here this morning. I'm curious if you relate to one of these situations. Uh, I, I house sat for my in-laws. They weren't my in-laws when I did it. I was in college at ORU, and I house sat for the Skags, and I went over there, and I stayed there for the week while they were out of town, and sometime when I was in their house, my wallet disappeared. And I tell people, I am a loser, not a finder. I lose things absolutely all the time. And once again, I lost my wallet at the Skaggs house. And it was so, so frustrating. I was so, so, so mad about it. And now, how about this one? You, you know, there was probably a moment for every one of us or most of us in the middle of the throes of the pandemic where you're trying to make sense of the whole thing. And you were like, this person right here is really smart, and they've got a lot of letters after their name, and they're saying we should do this, and we should think this way about the whole pandemic. And then there was someone else you respected who was really smart, who had a lot of letters after their name, and they said we should be thinking about it like that, and we should be doing that. And you're like, ah, which one should, was true? Which one should I do? Who should I be paying attention to? Very, very frustrating. We all had one of those moments probably in the middle of the pandemic. Or maybe a more positive situation. If you ever had the experience, maybe for you it was growing up and you came home from school. I hope you had this experience. And even just walking in the garage, you could smell that there was something good on the stove. 
And it's like, mm, you walk in and there's a big pot on the stove with a lid on it and you're so curious. I don't know what it is, but it smells really good and I hope I get to eat that really soon. In every one of these situations, what we most want, but we don't always get, is an unveiling. We want the unveiling of where on earth did I leave my wallet? What was so frustrating in those moments was realizing, I don't know where it is, but God knows where my wallet is. Why won't you just tell me? Uh, it turns out the, the Skaggs got a new washer and dryer like three years later, and my wallet was behind that, even though I don't even think I went in the laundry room. How's that a thing? I needed that unveiling. Or maybe what we really want in the middle of a pandemic is like a grand unveiling of, oh, this is the whole story about it. Or the situation that we most want is when we come home, we want to go stand in front of the stove and take the lid of the pot and take it off and it's unveiled before us everything that we're about to eat, the holy goodness within. It's, we want the unveiling. And as John's revelation begins, it's, it, John says that it, it's a revelation, it's the apocalypsis, that's the Greek word there, and it means an unveiling. And it gives us this picture that in the world as we know it, it's like we've been watching actors dancing behind a curtain and we see their shadows moving and we can only guess if they're true forms. But now the curtain has been pulled back, it's been unveiled, and we can see what's really going on in the stage in living color. John, in presenting his revelation, is saying there's a grand unveiling that's happening, and now we're going to get an opportunity to see and to reimagine all of human history and even what's happening for us in the present from God's point of view. John is employing and writing within this thing called apocalyptic literature, which is a genre within the Bible, a genre of literature. You have to appreciate that the Bible is, is like a library unto itself. That in the 66 books of the canon of our Old and New Testament, we have all sorts of genres represented. We've got poetry and wisdom literature, and we've got romance, and we've got personal letters, and we've got historical narrative, and we've got legal code, and we've got prophecy and apocalyptic literature, and all of this is within the Bible. And each one of these books representing these different genres has its own literary techniques and laws that we have to abide by. Otherwise, the reading is going to get a little bit funky. It's going to be a little bit off. Sometimes we ask things of a text that they're not attempting to answer. So let me give you a couple examples. One, you could just open the Bible to Genesis chapter 1. And if you didn't read a single word of Genesis chapter 1, you should take note that in the majority of our Bibles, the typesetting for the verses themselves are a little bit different. They don't look like historical narrative. It's set up as if it's like stanza by stanza, and we're meant to clue in and say, oh, this is written as a poem or even a kind of hymn. And the poem, using, using a poem or using a hymn, it's, it's meant to connote beauty and order, and it's underscoring the who behind creation and the, the, the beautiful, magnificent intent behind creation. It's not attempting to, be, to provide a, a textbook, a science textbook for people on the other side of the Enlightenment. We're meant to read it and appreciate it as a poem and, and get at its own ends and read it on its own terms. <clears throat> Let me give you another example. You could go to Judges chapter 4. In Judges chapter 4, there's this cool story of a prophetess by the name of Deborah. 
and Deborah is ruling over God's people, and there's a bad guy named Sisera, and Deborah, the prophetess, and Jael, this woman, together take down the bad guy, and we're just told the story in straightforward narrative form. But then you turn to Judges chapter 5, and you hear the same story told again, but using poetry and all this vivid language, and we've got like the thunders are, are raging, and God is coming on the clouds, and the angels are throwing down lightning bolts, and you're like, wait, I didn't see any of that in Judges chapter 4. You realize, oh, this is representing a different style of writing. In Judges chapter 4, we've got prose. In Judges chapter 5, we've got poetry, and they're meant to be read a bit differently. Now, I want to make three comments on the book of Revelation. Who has read the book of Revelation in its entirety? Okay, and who understood it completely? (laughs) Yeah, three comments about the book of Revelation. The first one, it's revelation, not revelations. (laughs) Just like, you know, when you quote Psalm 23, it's Psalm 23, not Psalms 23. It's the book of Psalms, it's the Psalm. Likewise, it's the book of Revelation, not Revelations. If you do say it like that, you've got to like bring some husk to your voice, okay? So two, one, it's Revelation. <laughs> two, more importantly, and interestingly, John's Revelation actually tells us not much new information if you've read the preceding 65 books of the Bible. John's revelation tells us little that's new. This comes from uh, Eugene Peterson. He said, the revelation has 404 verses. In those 404, there are 518 references to earlier scripture. If we're not familiar with the preceding writings, quite obviously, we're not going to understand the revelation. St. John has his favorite books of scripture, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zephaniah, just like all of you. Zechariah, Isaiah, Exodus, but there's probably not a single canonical Old Testament book to which he doesn't make at least some allusion or reference. The same cannot be said of his New Testament writings, but the data for the writing, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the community of Christians living by faith in Christ are all assumed and they're worked into the fabric of his poem. The statistics post a warning. No one has any business reading the last book who has not read the previous 65. It makes no more sense to read the last book of the Bible apart from the entire scriptures than it does to read the last chapter of any novel skipping everything before it. Much mischief, and I like that language, much mischief has been done by reading the Revelation in isolation from its canonical context. What's that mean? It just means you've got to read the, the Revelation in view of the whole Bible. Conversely, the Revelation does some of its best work when it sends its readers back to Genesis and Exodus, to Isaiah and Ezekiel, to Daniel and the Psalms, to the Gospels and Paul. St. John did not make up his visions of dragons, beasts, harlots, plagues, horsemen out of his own imagination. The Spirit gave him the images out of the scriptures that he knew so well. Every line of the revelation is mined out of the rich strata of scripture laid down in earlier ages. 
John's revelation tells us little that's new. And yet, the third thing that I want to say about revelation is John's revelation represents familiar things in new ways for the purpose of waking us up. Eugene Peterson again. I wonder how many of you relate to this. He said, for myself, although I have occasional charismatic moments, moments where you just feel alive with God, full of energy and zeal, I am mostly a creature of routine. I get up at the same time each morning and I follow predictable patterns throughout my day. The neighbors might not be able to set their watches by my passing, but neither do I give them any surprises. God's faithfulness new each morning finds me heavy-lidded. I'm thick-skinned to the Spirit's breeze. I'm dull-eared to the heavens declaring the glory of God. He asks, is there no vision that can open our eyes to the abundant life of redemption in which we are immersed by Christ's covenant? Is there no trumpet that can wake us up to the intricacies of grace, the profundities of peace, the repeated and unrepeatable instances of love that are under and around and over us? I do not read the Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I have read it all before in law and prophet gospel, an epistle. Everything in the Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There's nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. I read the Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. I want you to consider, and perhaps there have been some ways that you've been teed up to think that you're meant to read the book of Revelation. I want you to consider that it's, it's a, like a graphic novel. That's another way of telling the familiar story that, that Paul is engaging with in the life of the church. And John and Peter and James are engaging with as they go back and forth in the life of the church and salvation and everything that God is doing to save the cosmos. Let's attempt to see what John himself, how John himself understood this book, uh, the angle from which this book comes. These are the first couple of verses. He said, this is the revelation, the apocalypsis, the unveiling from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. If you have a paper Bible, underline that phrase, what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So he says, this is the unveiling. I'm going to show you behind the curtain. And you kind of follow the sequence of events. The father gave this revelation to Jesus, the son, who gave this to angels, who gave this to John to show what must soon take place. Now here's verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. I'm doing that right now. I get a blessing. Great. And blessed are those who hear it. You also get one. And take to heart what's written in it because, again, another phrase you can underline, because the time is near. Okay, so let's note this. Verse 3, it's interesting. It said, fortunate, blessed, lucky is the one who reads aloud the words of this, this prophecy who hears it and who takes it to heart because what's written is, is written because the time is near. 
Have you read that before? Have you considered what's the significance of reading aloud and listening? Why is that such a big deal? Well, listening to stories, listening to books, listening to the scriptures read actually engages your imagination in a different way than it does if you're sitting with a pen and paper and just marking it out yourself. There's something about actually hearing it that stimulates you differently than just reading it. Some of you have perhaps gone and seen a Shakespeare play before. Emily and I did this in New York. We saw Shakespeare in the park, and, and at first it's very jarring to try to understand what on earth is going on because you've got characters out the wazoo, and they're speaking in Old English, and you're like, oh, Bill, what are you trying to say here? But after a while, you, you begin to adjust. And there's, it's helpful to see actors on a stage and to read their facial expressions. And though you couldn't recreate word for word the things that you're saying, after a certain point, your brain just kind of switches into gear and you can get the gist of what's going on and what's being expressed. There's something about hearing and seeing simultaneously that engages you differently than if you were sitting down with the, the, the script of the play and trying to understand it for yourself and having a much more difficult time. Uh, there have been neurological studies talking about the stuff that goes on in our brains when we listen to things being read to us, especially stories. When, when stories are read to us and read to children, our brains just go wild, especially with little kids. If they hear words being, being read to them and also have pictures to look at, I mean, just on brain scans, it's lighting up all over the place. Contrast that to what's going on in our brains when we're just watching television and there's little imagination required because everything's provided for us. We are like, like dead people. So throw away all of your televisions and read to your children. It says, blessing on those who hear and take to heart what's written. Why? It says, because the time is near. Okay, now let me ask you this question. I'll ask it rhetorically, but think about it. If you only had verses 1 through 3 to go on, you're doing a book study here. If you only had verses 1 through 3 to go on, who would you say this book is for and what is this book addressing? Well, you'd probably say if you were really studying those verses, you'd say, well, I think it's probably for the people who were living then and stuff that they were facing because it said, you know, the time is near. It said what must soon take place. This appears to be a warning about things that are imminent, that are, you know, happening among the people in real time. And this is actually confirmed in verse 4. John says, I, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Who is he writing to? He's writing to these seven churches who are in the province of Asia, which Asia, the province of Asia here does not refer to the continent of Asia as we think about it, but it's actually a Roman like taxable province in Western Turkey. If you do a search of uh, in like on Bible Gateway or something of the, the province of Asia, you'll see it come up again and again and again. It's, it's addressed to the seven churches in the province of of Asia. So this included uh, the cities of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And so John's saying, everything I'm writing here for you, this vision that was given to me is for you seven churches in the province of Asia. Therefore, it's not explicitly for those living in Galatia. It's not those for those living in Corinth. It's not for those living in Jerusalem. It's, it's contextually specific. If you only add verses 1 through 4 to go on and you ask who's the book for and what is it addressing, 
Like we'd say, well, it's to these seven churches and the stuff that they were facing. Okay, now why am I uh, belaboring this point? A couple of reasons. One is that this book has either been ignored because it's so lofty and difficult and esoteric, and it is difficult. I read the whole thing in one sitting this week, you know, one through chapter 22. It's like, man, that's a doozy. That's quite a read. And you, it is easy to get discouraged and not know what it's all about. So often people ignore it. But, but the, the other reason I'm belaboring the point about the context is that many people treat this book as a step-by-step guide to deciphering the end of the world, primarily the last 15 minutes of human history. And I would just ask, what practical benefit, what practical benefit would Christians 2,000 years ago have in knowing what's going to happen 3,000 years or so after they die? What practical benefit is, is John giving to these seven churches if the book is only about the last 15 minutes of human history? Now, I hope that I'm not ruining anyone's day here, but I think that one of the greatest hindrances to getting our head on straight about the book of Revelation is series like, I'm sorry to say it, Left Behind. Is it possible that I have gone into libraries before and checked out the books and never returned them so people will not read them? I mean, it's possible. (laughs) Did I do it twice? Who's to say? I don't know. (laughs) I actually did two times (laughs) in the dumpster. I don't feel bad. Now, now, treat it like religious fiction or something like that. Read it for a story. Don't read it to understand the book of Revelation. Because series like that often treat the Bible, the book of Revelation, like Nicolas Cage treats the Declaration of Independence in movies like National Treasure. <laughs> Instead, if, if we want to receive the blessing of being among those who hear and take to heart what's written in here, we need to read the book on its own terms and assume that it's Firstly, addressing the immediate people and context that it overtly states that it aims to, to the seven churches going through the things that they're going through. And if that's taken as a given, another question naturally arises is, is why is John addressing these seven churches? What's going on in their life that would merit this, this grand cosmic apocalyptic vision? And we get a clue in uh, verse 9. I, John, your brother and your companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. John, I, John, your brother and companion in suffering. Oh, this is a church that's suffering. This is a church that's being persecuted, and John himself has been exiled because of his witness to the resurrection of Jesus. If you do a search of the province of Asia in, you know, in some kind of Bible search engine, you often find that what happens in the province of Asia is intense cultural opposition. You realize this is a church that's undergoing suffering. Practically, suffering and persecution in early centuries could mean that by being baptized into the church of Jesus Christ, you'd be kicked out of your trade guild. So some of you work in oil and gas, some of you work in commercial real estate, some of you are nurses or doctors. Imagine if you are baptized and therefore you can no longer practice medicine. Imagine that you can no longer, you know, sell real estate. You can no longer teach. 
Persecution often meant effectively getting kicked out of the economy. It could mean that you're getting kicked out of your family. It could mean physical violence. That happened to Paul in the province of Asia. And I don't know, I've never really had the experience of being truly hated by a large group of people. Or if I am, I don't know about it. (laughs) Thank God. But some of, some of us may know what it's like to be an object of public scrutiny and to be very disliked or maligned or mistrusted. And, and the weight, I understand, can just be too much to bear unless one sees themselves as playing a part in a grander narrative. It's that famous quote by Viktor Frankl. Some of you know he lived through Auschwitz. He said, he who has a why can endure any how. And John, as a theologian and a poet and a pastor, was inspired by the Holy Spirit to help the seven, these seven churches, see the grand battle of the cosmos of which they are a part. And so he's given to give to the churches this vision of a story of a lamb who conquered by being slain. A lamb who confronts the dragon, the beast seeking to devour all that's pure, and followers of the lamb who through patient endurance, at least three times in the Revelation, John calls the people to patient endurance, who through patient endurance join him in the reckoning of evil and the renewal of creation and the return of the king to a throne that's nestled among his people. In order to have the ability and the perspective to endure suffering, they had to know that they were caught up in a bigger story and that God was the chief actor and His Son, Jesus Christ, the chief actor in this story. And this story was meant to animate and to inspire and to give shape and purpose to their suffering. By seeing, by having the grand story unveiled, it enabled them to practice this kind of narrative resistance. They could resist because they knew they were caught up in a bigger story. Uh, An author I like, uh, who's a bit controversial, his name is Rod Dreher. He wrote a book called How Dante Can Save Your Life. He wrote uh, The Benedict Option. And And then recently he wrote a book called Live Not By Lies. And in the book, he's, he's studying these people who lived through Soviet totalitarianism, especially those who led Christian opposition to Soviet uh, totalitarianism. And living in an age where there was intense propaganda and persecution against the church and, and Christians were, were rounded up, pastors and priests were systematically arrested, and some of them were physically crucified, some of them were defiled in ways that I, I don't think that I can even share in a room like this. And he was trying to understand how did they survive and how did the church thrive. And persecution like that brought out the, the most like, creative thinking, spirit-inspired thinking of the church. And they banded together and raising their children. It was so inspiring. How do you do that? How do you know and uphold truth in, in the face of like, like oppressive propaganda? How do you raise children knowing that they could be the victims of, of persecution? How do you have a family? How do you stand firm in the faith when it feels like the entire world is against you? He's talking with this one guy who's, who lived in Slovakia during the totalitarianism, totalitarian regime, and he said, the underground Catholic church was the main source of resistance here, but over there in gesturing toward what's now the Czech Republic, he said the Christian resi- resistance was the Benda family. One family. 
And I said, that's probably a bit of an overstatement, but we need to appreciate the Bindas were just this catalytic presence in what's now the Czech Republic. As people would be making their way to be interrogated, they would stop at the house of Vaclav and Camilla Binda and they'd pray for him and they'd coach him and they'd feed him. And sometimes after they recanted their faith, they would show up again to receive comfort and to receive words of challenge. Andrea was talking to some of the children of the Bendas and asking, how did your mom and dad train you to be devout, to follow Jesus fearlessly when propaganda was just like so oppressive when the world was against you? And so several of the children told the stories of things that their parents did. And one of them I found particularly inspiring and those who know me well will appreciate why. Speaking of their mom, one of them said, despite the demands of her job teaching at the university, Camilla Benda made time to read aloud to her children for two to three hours daily. Every day, I asked, stunned. Every day, she affirms. She read them fairy tales, myths, adventure stories, and even some horror classics. And more than any other novel, though, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings was a cornerstone of her family's collective imagination. Why Tolkien, I ask? Because we knew that Mordor was real. Mordor is like the epicenter of all that is dark and terrible and evil. We knew that Mordor was real. And we felt that their story, that of the hobbits and others resisting the evil Sauron, was our story too. Tolkien's dragons are more realistic than a lot of other things we have in this world. Patrick says the key is to expose children to stories that help them know the difference between truth and falsehood and teach them how to discern this in real life. Gave them a form of narrative resistance. Now, John's revelation is firstly written to those whose social context was antithetical to the way of Jesus. They knew that it was us against the world. In order to give them both a vocabulary and an imagination adequate to the challenges that they faced and to remind them that if they patiently endure, they will reign with the lamb who was slain but is now risen over a renewed creation. So told them, hold on, don't give up. The way of the lamb will defeat and outlast the way of the dragon. And though it was written primarily Firstly, for those who are living through that time, do we not see in our world as it is that it's also a book that's for our time and there's a blessing on us if we listen and we take to heart the words that are written in here and find ourselves caught up in the bigger story. I want to I give you a challenge and I want to ask you a question and then I want us to end with a prayer. Here's the challenge I want to give you. Some, some of you may take me up on this. I want to challenge you to listen to the book of Revelation in one sitting this week. Maybe you're going to drive to Oklahoma City. Maybe you're going to take a run. Maybe you're, you're willing to just like, like sit down and do the whole thing. We, give, we provide the Dwell app as a congregation. If you get our weekly emails, you can download that for free and listen to the whole thing. But I want to challenge you to listen to the book of Revelation in its entirety. And as you do it, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Don't overthink it. Just listen and think, how does this make me feel? If I were to like, try to like, retell the, the narrative at the highest level, what is this story about? Paint a picture of what it's about. And then the second thing I want to ask you to do, I want to ask you this question. And if you work through this question this week, I think it's going to lead to some fruitful thinking. 
Now, thinking about how, you know, for, for the Bendas, the, the story of Tolkien and, that, and for the early church, the story of the revelation gave them this narrative way of making sense of their lives. I want you to think about the narratives that are shaping your life. The question I want to ask is, if it could be revealed, what story or stories are inspiring and animating your life? If it could be revealed, what story is animating your life? Now, it might be, you know, you might access that by thinking about what are the stories like the movies or the books that I resonate with the most? What's, who's a living person that when I think about them, I'm like, yes, that's what I want to be like. That's what I want to achieve. That's what I want to be about. Or maybe it's like, this, this is what I would aspire to be true of me. And if you are able to name as candidly as possible, not trying to flatter or impress anyone else, if you're able to candidly name that story or those stories, then I want you to consider in that story, what, what is the goal or the end of that story? How is success defined or achieved in that story? I want you to think about in that story, what inner qualities does that story call forth in you? Is it a story of self-denial? Is it a story of self-aggrandizement? Is it a story of your magnificent ascent to power and glory? Is it a story of decent? Is it a story of generosity or a story of stinginess? What inner qualities does that story call from you? And then I want you to consider in what ways is that story similar or dissimilar to the story of the gospel? What story or stories are animating and giving shape to your life? And then as we conclude this morning, having kind of begun to get our head on straight thinking about the revelation, I want us to share this prayer together. I'll pray this on our behalf. Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and thinking about my life and thinking about our world and thinking about everything that you ask of us and all that you might do, I hold up my weakness to your strength. I hold up my failure to your faithfulness, my sinfulness to your perfection, my loneliness to your compassion, my little pains to your great agony on the cross. And I pray that you'll cleanse me. I pray that you'll strengthen me. I pray that you'll guide me so that in all my ways, my life may be lived as you would have lived it, without cowardice and for you alone. Show me how to live in true humility and true contrition and true love. Lord Jesus, as we reflect on the scriptures today and we think about the stories that are shaping us, we just acknowledge that being born in the place that we were born, being born into the families that we were born into, being in many ways products of popular and entertainment culture that are intrinsic to the Western world, the United States, we just know that we can be misshapen and misguided. We know that we buy in so readily to the stories of the self-made woman and the self-made man. We're compelled like the people at Babel to make a name for ourselves that we're just fickle, that, you know, thinking about someone not understanding us or someone not liking us is so objectionable that we would bend on your law or what you said is true and good and beautiful and best for us. 
We just know this to be true of ourselves. And so wake us up, Lord. Draw us in, Jesus. Help us to see ourselves as as living, actual characters in this grand story of the cosmos that you're writing. I pray that you'd invite us to follow Jesus in picking up the way of the cross. You'd help us to be fearless of the world's despising and yet ever full of love for those that you love. As we gather and receive communion, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would do what we cannot, that you take this bread and wine and make it be so much more than just that, but may it be for us a means by which through the Holy Spirit we experience the power and the presence of Christ who reigns. Forgive the sinner, heal the sick, encourage the weary, unite the church, and embolden us to live as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. As we pray in Christ's name and for Christ's glory, amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.